This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we support design engineers and make lightning protection easy. You're listening to the Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. All right, welcome back to the Struck Aerospace Engineering Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's show, we've got a lot of prototypes to talk through. So my co-host, Alan Hall here, is going to kind of pick apart a bunch of these different designs, talk about some of the good things and the bad things. And uh, But we'll start with some news. Airbus talking about hydrogen, Starlink, internet, potentially providing fast Wi-Fi to planes, which is something pretty interesting that I hadn't thought about. And then we'll get into some different concepts, a tri-wing jumbo jet, an electric seaplane, and a really interesting, what's called a fluidic propulsion system on a flying car concept, as well as one that has the wings uh, detach and fly home. So again, this will be kind of fun, uh, but let's start with news. Uh, Alan, so Airbus has said that the you know hydrogen is probably not going to be widely used in planes before 2050 so 30 years off does that sound right to you well they're talking about larger aircraft like an a320 a350 kind of aircraft not being able to switch over to hydrogen i think that's right the the shorter commuter type aircraft uh, maybe propeller driven aircraft will be an easier conversion and it makes a lot of sense because there's a lot of short routes in europe and also in the united states that that could handle a hydrogen aircraft, but it, it's going to have to be specifically designed. And that's why Airbus is pushing it back a little bit. I think early on, there was an impression like we're going to make an Airbus A350 with hydrogen. That's not where Airbus, it, I don't think that's where their intent was. I think eventually, yes. I mean, that's that they did put out some PR about that, right? I mean, we, we saw all the promotional things. But that then that didn't have a timeline. If they're talking about hydrogen aircraft, yeah, they they can totally um, like an ATR seventy two or uh, the Dash eight Q four hundred turboprop aircraft aircraft would be relatively modifiable uh, into a hydrogen configuration. But after that, when you talk about changing a turbofan engine to hydrogen and all the infrastructure involved in aircraft to for the fuel system, that's just going to take a long time because there's so many, so many pieces to it. Hydrogen's a very small molecule; it leaks everywhere, uh, whereas liquid fuel doesn't do that same thing. So it, all the des- all the design elements change, and pressures and temperatures are all different. You're starting over. That's what's what's what Airbus is saying. It's like, look, guys, we want to start over. <laughs> you get what to, we can't do that overnight. We can't even do it in ten years. Yeah, so it sounds like they're going to want all these current planes that use turbofans to just run their course, essentially, and like you said, just start from scratch, like a whole different design? Or, I mean, do you see it being like a really wacky, very different looking, like futuristic looking, or or is it just going to be an A320 that's still pretty normal looking that runs on hydro? Like, is there a reason that it has to be strange looking to be futuristic and use a different propulsion system because like all these renderings you see like yeah so they always seem very science fictiony right but right does it have to be that way or might it look the same in 2050 i think the aircraft essentially is going to look the same except that the fuselage may get longer because the initial concepts involve putting hydrogen storage tanks of some sort 
And the that, fuselage. That's sort of the storage is a big one. Mm-hmm. Right. So the, the fuselage may get longer, which means the wingspan may get a little bit longer also uh, to, to keep every aircraft sort of in balance. But that's it because the wings will have no fuel in them, liquid fuel in them. So you'll completely redesign the way the wings would be because they just need to maintain their own structure, don't have any fuel sloshing around on them. So the, the structural change there too. Yeah, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a basic fundamental kind of Airbus 350 kind of look, I think, but just with the longer aft fuselage section entail. So moving on, Starlink, uh, which is obviously Elon Musk's uh, company with SpaceX, is talking about putting Starlink internet into airplanes in the upcoming future with uh, potentially 100 megabyte per second download and 20 megabyte per second upload, which would be much faster than, I mean, Alan, you're a much more frequent um, (laughs) in-flight internet user than I am. What, What do you guess that it is? Uh, it's not great. It's it's not as bad as it used to be. It's certainly gotten better, right? But yeah. I mean, what do you think they're competing with as far as upload-download speed today? The consensus is they're competing with what is in people's homes. So that's what that's the expectation level is when you get an aircraft, you have the same speed internet as what you have at the house or at work. And it hasn't been that way. Uh, I fly no. Southwest a lot, and Global Eagle is the prov- service provider there. And the internet speed's aren't super fast like you, you can't stream anything you can't have huge downloads you can't stream a youtube video or watch netflix live uh, but you can do pretty much everything else you can send email you can download some files it's it's not uh it's not like being at work or it's not like being at at your house it's just not there not there but for most situations it's reasonably good it's not even really annoying honestly uh i i've never tried to do massive (laughs) internet file sharing while on an airplane but maybe somebody has and i know if the if youtube were offered uh, or live video streams were offered people would take it and would use it it's just just not there yet but you know dan the the issue with the with like starlink and um, there's a couple others that are going on simultaneously is that you have this geometry problem. Right now, the way the, the way the situation is, the spacecraft are geosynchronous. That means they're in a fixed position uh, with the Earth. They're always in. The, if you always look in the same spot in the sky, it's always there. So, from the aircraft's perspective, when it's flying, it kind of it knows where it is for the most part, and it knows generally where to look. And so, there, it just takes one antenna to focus on one spacecraft and just sort of lock in on that and hold it. That's relatively simple to do. When you put a lot of low Earth orbit spacecraft in, they're moving and spinning around the Earth. So if I look up in the sky, I can actually watch these spacecraft go overhead of me. Okay. So now I got a, a moving aircraft and I got a moving spacecraft and I got to connect data link those two together. All right, that's doable. So you have an antenna that knows generally what the schedule is of of spacecraft, I would assume, or it's out there just searching for one, uh, and it finds one, it links into it. Okay, great. So you're you're downloading your YouTube video with this one spacecraft as it's moving relative to the airplane. Awesome. Well, at some point that that's, that spacecraft is going to go out of range, going to go over the horizon. You're going to lose it. So you got to get to the next spacecraft and connect with it. So in the interim, you have one of two choices. 
you stop with the first spacecraft, let it go, and look around and find the second spacecraft, which means your YouTube video will stop streaming in that time period between a spacecraft one and spacecraft two. That kind of sucks, right? People don't like internet that's kind of spotty, which it would be spotty like that. The other way to do it is have spacecraft one kind of get near its edge of coverage and the antenna be able to see spacecraft two and link into it and connect with it before you lose spacecraft one. That's the mm -hmm. engineering issue. How do you connect? Get the overlap. Right, how do you connect with spacecraft two before you disconnect? That's the issue, right? So in, in terms of, of uh, existing hardware today on that, that the antennas that sit on the airplanes, um, that hardware is not able to make what they call make before break. It, it can't make before break. If you, ha you have to add either more antennas, so you have two antennas looking in two different directions, which is doable, or you have to have an electronic antenna that can look at two different spacecraft or more simultaneously. There's your, there's your mm, dilemma, okay. right? From the engineering side, it gets a lot more complicated to keep track of all this moving stuff in the sky and lock into it when you're in this moving aircraft that's going up, down, left, right, all over the place and bouncing through turbulence to try to keep all this organized. There's your technical challenge. So can Starlink provide better data streams? Yes. Does it going to require more complex hardware on the aircraft? Oh, yeah. And the, the, big, the big drawback has been so far on the electronically steered antennas is that it takes a lot of power to do this, to do the, ste the electronic steering and all the processing stuff that has to happen. The antennas get hot, like really hot, but particularly if they're on the ground. It's not so bad if you're flying where it's like minus 70 degrees Fahrenheit out there in the, in the sky. That's awesome, it's a big heat sink, it's sucking all the heat out. But if I'm in Dubai, I'm on the ground and it's 120, and I want to stream my YouTube video, that antenna is going to get really hot. It's going to get hot enough on a composite airplane like the A350 where it may damage the aircraft skin, the fuselage. Hmm. And you're not going to do that, right? Because you may trash an airplane doing that or really damage it sufficiently. So there's a technology problem, which is we want to have higher data streams and we want to do this low Earth orbit thing on spacecraft but we got to deal with all the heat so either we have a heat issue and nicely smooth antennas or you have two antennas looking in different directions that that's that's the choice and right now no one's made that choice yet um uh, spacex is has some i think they have some gulfstream airplanes out there with uh prototype antennas on the flying around to try to see how the system works but ultimately you got to certify it and the heat issue is going to be a big problem that's such an interesting answer. I mean, I, I wouldn't expect anything less from you since you've worked with so many of these companies like Viasat and GoGo, you know, on radomes and you know your ins and outs here. But people think, oh, yeah, let's just upgrade the Internet. And they <laughs> never think that it's so technical and that there might be other issues of damaging yeah. the actual airplane like that. That yeah. just it's crazy how many of these air, aircraft issues are just way more complex than they seem right like. and you've had a lot of if you had a couple of, of companies start and stop on electronically steered antennas there's no moving parts there and that that has not come to fruition they've always had this heat problem they can't couldn't get over fincom which is the antennas for gogo -Go, which look like sort of pizza plates uh that spin so they they are flat when they're round 
and they steer sort of, but they also spin, which is part of the steering thing. Uh, they've been talking about being able to make before break and maybe having two sets of antennas, but they're really low profile and their and their efficiency is really good. And so they, they find ThinkCom's really found a sweet spot there. I'm not sure it's the ultimate final answer, but it's a pretty good answer for right now. And I th I, I think you may see like two sets of antennas installed ThinCom antennas that would do the make before break and do all the Leo stuff. That may be the 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 at least the interim solution, maybe the final solution if it works well. All right, so in our engineering segment today, we're going to talk about this really fascinating uh, prototype from SE Aeronautics that is a jumbo jet, the SE200. It's a super efficient subsonic jet. They say can carry 264 plus passengers at Mach uh, 0.9 with a range of 10,560 miles. And one of the key features here is that it has three wings and that is going to give them some sort of aerodynamic boost uh alan you know there's been a bunch of really interesting concepts that we'll talk through here many of which have come from uh, robreport.com so definitely check out their website um they seem to really enjoy all these you know futuristic prototypes of planes cars buses uh you know boats all of it but what's the advantage of having multiple wings and why don't we see planes with multiple wings because it doesn't work very well <laughs> dynamically. And why are they touting it? Well, and why are they saying I it's the future? I think there's a difference between sort of standardized flight and then what actually happens in flight and all the weird configurations an aircraft can get into and all the limitations and flight demonstrations that are put on an aircraft to show that it's safe to fly, that it stalls safely, that the pilot can control it into stall and out of stall, uh, and all the other odd flight performance things that have to happen there that's where you get back to these conventional designs because they have shown effective uh means of, of complying with the regulations bmfaa or iasa or transport canada it doesn't really make any difference right so you mm -hmm. from a from an aerodynamic standpoint it may work doesn't seem like it's going to work, but it may work. But there's, there's so many variables in certifying an aircraft that unique designs kind of get tossed to the wayside because it's going to be so expensive to show that they work. And, and can you imagine building a full-scale prototype, a full-scale aircraft, and then going out to flight test it and go, oh, man, we got a problem we can't get over? Yeah, because if, if one you have one wing, uh, there's something like you can't just chop right. off a wing with a saw saw. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, in the good old days, right? they used to do that, actually. When I worked at Beach Aircraft uh, back in the 90s, I guess, uh, there's some really interesting discussions about how they made airplanes and how they modded airplanes at night. So they fly them during the daytime, and then they'd mod them at night, and they would literally cut off parts of, like, tails and stick on another tail because a lot of times they're made out of wood uh so yeah i mean that 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 day and time has has gone by where you could cut off and lop off and reattach different parts of the aircraft that doesn't happen very much anymore particularly with composites and aluminum this doesn't really happen all that much yeah so you hate to be a half a billion dollars into it and realize you can't certify it that's the wrong time to find that out well and you've said that many many times can't certify it realize you know find out you can't certify it i mean what does that mean is it, it just means that you all get in a room and you realize that there's just a yeah. hurdle that i mean what does that actually look like when they say we can't it certify doesn't happen this? very like, often today uh but 
if you have an aircraft, you have a, a set of regulations, a performance regulations, a minimum performance. I always call them minimum performance standards. The FAA and EASA create minimum performance standards. The can, aircraft can work better than that, but at a minimum, it's going to do these things. And so what happens is uh, if you have, like stall can be a big one or zero G pushovers or some of those uh, swept wing aircraft can have a problem in certain flight configurations where they want to deep stall and roll over. There are certain aerodynamic features about an airplane that if not dealt with correctly, you can't certify it. Uh, so that's why you see, if you if you look at a new clean sheet aircraft design and maybe that first flying prototype aircraft and look at the wing, look how clean it is, and then look at what's certified at the end, usually those little bit of aerodynamic treatments Vortex generators, stall fences, uh, trip boundary trip layer, uh, things on the leading edge, where 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 they where they couldn't certify it without adding on pieces, and that's what it means is that you couldn't certify it, so they needed to add some adjustments to the aerodynamics, and you you see that a lot. Uh, from first prototype to the final design. But if you choose a very unique design, which no has no proven data, you really didn't even know where to go. So if you got into a performance issue, a safety issue in terms of its flight performance, you're in this weird aerodynamic space where you don't have any history and you don't know what the little uh, band-aids are to fix it, right? And so you're into this big R&D effort late in the program. Now, a lot of aircraft... There's been a number of aircraft that have had issues structurally um, that sunk them in terms of uh, pressurization cycles or certain ultimate loads that they don't handle. Uh, that can be very, very expensive to fix late in a program. We've been around a couple of those. And it, when you have an aircraft structure fail at a load that's less than what's required, that's a big deal. Because at that point, you probably have 10 aircraft on the line. You've already manufactured. And you got to go back and fix the structure. That's expensive. And it's time delay. And th that can pretty much sink a program if, you're, if you don't have the cash to withstand it. So it just sounds like it just is going to continue just to be little iterations on the designs you already have. And for something this big, I mean, this is a jumbo jet. So like you said, the idea of this thing being actually produced without having the real world data, whether it's not, it's going to be certifiable is, is pretty scary. It's, it's scary, right? And that, that's what drives investors away. But we're seeing a lot of investment into EV tolls. They have very unique designs today. But again, uh, there's a big downside risk that you can't certify it. And you could be literally a billion or two billion into an aircraft program and realize we got to make big adjustments to it and, quasi start over or at least go back to the early stages and that that it eats up so much cash that you just can't you can't make it through it all right so moving on to our evtol and really just electric segment today um there's a bunch of other prototypes that are just interesting maybe the future maybe difficult to to come to fruition um first on the docket this is also a one we found on rob report um an all-electric seaplane the Regent Sea Glider, and uh, it's going to fly at 180 miles per hour, just above the water surface. I mean, it's got looks like just like turboprops. Um, but Alan, I mean, is there a huge market for seaplanes? And 
how how common is this that planes are hovering close to the water? Well, the Russians have done this, or Soviets have done this for a, a long time, going across some large bodies of water. Basically, you're sort of like this ground effect situation where there's a, a cushion of air real close to the surface. Uh, so you get the aircraft moving a little bit. You kind of get it where that you, you got some, you're basically compressing the air down into the water, and it creates this little cushion of air. It's very similar to when you're landing, like in a 737, you get close to the ground, you feel the aircraft kind of float. That's what they're working on. They're working on that float process. Hmm. I have felt that. Okay. Interesting. Right. So it, it's an aircraft that lives in that principle. So it's only a few feet off the surface, uh, but you can move fairly fast, and it doesn't. You're not that far off the off the ground where there's a huge risk. I mean, if you lost thrust, the airplane would just settle into the water again. <laughs> you just be a gentle landing, just like you do anyway. So, from a complexity standpoint, it's not very complex. But you're really limited where you're going to fly this thing, which is over water, right? So if you're going across um, from Long Island to Connecticut or something, you could do you could do that. And if you're going from, I don't know, uh, Gulf of Mexico, going from Texas to Florida or something, you could do that. It'd be a slower mode of transportation. But on shorter routes, like if you're going across Lake Michigan, it'd be totally possible. Uh, just think of it like a quasi very fast boat i mean it's essentially it except it's just riding on a on a cushion of air all the way across so it's it's a neat concept we haven't seen it used in the united states in forever i know i think it was back in the 40s when the last time i remember uh there was some work like that but there are active aircraft uh which would be today's russia i believe that is still working on that principle that are kind of cargo aircraft that move things from place to place on that cushion of air. It's really interesting technology, uh, but haven't seen it much used in the United States in a long time. Well, and one other feature of this, the sea glider, is that it also can go through the water on foils. Very similar. So it has these things that come down and, yep, so it acts as a, you know, it's like a like a water taxi, a ferry. So the, the company Regents got 465 million in provisional orders. So it sounds like there's definitely some interest here, which that one's pretty cool. What? Wait a minute, 465 million? Is that what you just said? Mm-hmm. Wow, okay. That's a lot of cash. Commercial airline and ferry I, companies. I, uh, mm-hmm. Four, that's a half a billion dollars. <laughs> My math, ferry, right? The ferry market is alive and kicking. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah, I've never wow. been in a seaplane, so I want to see this come to effect. I want to, I oh, want no? to, I want to be in the seaplane. No, I have not. Yeah, talk about air sickness and seasickness. It's, it's both of those at the same time. So you better not have any sensitivity to, to motion sickness because you will have it in in that environment. Yeah. <laughs> so our next prototype here is a uh, it's a called the this FlexCraft, and it basically allows the wings of this sort of flying car to then take off and fly back to the airport or your home or whatever. So. The plane connects the car to the wings, flies where it needs to go. When you're done, wings take off and go home. <laughs> I mean, it sounds so silly, <laughs> but it also is like pretty interesting and and fun. Um, I mean, do you see the flex craft coming to fruition? That also just seems incredibly complex. It it is complex. There has been other efforts. Uh, I think in the 1970s there was a very similar concept well, well the, the wing would attach and then you'd fly with it and you could take the wing off then propulsion system off and then drive it like a car terrafusia in 
the Boston area was the latest one where they had a, it was like a little car, but it had wings that would pop out or expand into place and you could fly this aircraft and then retract them and then uh, drive it like a car. That's been the latest effort similar to that, but they had trouble financially. And I, I think they ended, the company ended up being sold to a, a conglomerate in China, if I remember correctly. So there's been a lot of attempts at this. No one's really made it happen, but it'd be interesting if um, you know Tesla would get involved in something like that, right? Talk about taking the existing car battery uh, electric propulsion and be able to s- slap on some wings and go fly. That sounds like something Elon Musk could be interested in doing. And then a different flex mode where it can go down into his boring tunnel so you can collect a toll <laughs> right. there as well. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> he, can, he can toll you just, in the just air. just goes everywhere. And then it just comes into a seat, turns into a seaplane too. But part of the vision is that you'd have like this neighborhood drive-through where you know, you like drive your your pot your pods over there, and then go over and like hook up to the to the wings, which is oh, it's a really, yeah, sure. it's a really interesting idea. But um, a lot of infrastructure. It needs Tesla cash. Yeah, it's probably would Tesla have to cash. come after the EVTOL thing. Um, yes. Yeah, I don't know. It seems <laughs> seems even harder than the EVT, EVTOL <laughs> thing that everyone's trying to do. It's very yeah. popular these days. These EVTOLs. Um, and then this really interesting concept, the Jaloptera J2000 uh, VTOL uses bladeless Dyson-style fans. So they call this like a fluidic propulsion system. Alan, have you ever heard this in an air, of this in an aircraft? No. So I looked up these Dyson fans a while ago because I was just curious of how they worked. It's just like it looks like a big, you know, ring. But it has lots of little tiny jets around the edge, and it shoots air through those. And if you shoot a big ring of air, it'll pull the other air in the center of it through with it. And apparently that is the concept here as well, where if you have thrust all in a ring, it's going to suck the air into the center of it as well. Um, That seems really neat, but again, this seems right up that same alley of being difficult to certify. And I don't know, how do you find redundancy for all this? And Right. Right. I mean, the, the reliability of it has to be outstanding, uh, particularly if they're in this particular case, you have a couple of these different fluidic propulsion systems. If one of them dies, what happens? So the reliability is super key here and the efficiency of it. If it's not as efficient as some of these uh, electric propeller systems, then why mess with it? And the electric propeller system is going to be pretty darn efficient. So it's going to be hard to beat that. And if adding complexity to it makes it less reliable, then it's just not going to go. It has to have, has to have either fewer moving parts. And it's hard to beat an electric motor with a propeller on it in terms of moving parts because there's just not a lot of moving pieces there. Uh, and the efficiency is very high. So it doesn't seem like it's a reality. I guess in a sense that you would eliminate the rotating chopping blades situation that, that exists on the EV tolls right now. So it, it it would be more approachable if that's the proper term for it. You know, humans are afraid of dying all the time and they don't like walking into rotating blades and they want to stay away from it as much as possible. Even when flying, I still don't like flying in line with the propellers on a, on a propeller driven aircraft. I want to be either in front of them or behind them because <laughs> if they ever let loose, Bad stuff's going to happen. Probably a moot point if the plane's going down, but yeah, I get it. I bet if it, I mean, a lot of times they, well, 
<laughs> on a on a twin engine turboprop, if you lost one propeller, you could get home, and it has happened. Uh, okay, okay. But yeah, but you just have to be that. the poor, you just don't want to be the poor soul who's sitting next to that propeller. That that's not good. <laughs> yeah, so, that'd be rough. Yeah, Jalopsera has received an a contract from the U.S. Air Force, so they got one of or they got two. Uh, small business technology transfer contracts to characterize the noise of their fluidic propulsion system. So there's some interest in what it does. Could it be quieter? All that sure. sort of stuff. Stealthier. Um, so may, yeah, maybe there's a maybe there's a a application for it somewhere. I mean, it seems like the Air Force is always kind of gobbling up and just giving some money to these companies that have pretty outside the box things. And I don't know. Maybe the Air Force has an idea for it, like something. I mean. Especially with drones, like maybe something like this would be easily applied to, to drones, right? And be really quiet or something. Like they've yeah. got a, you know, they could have a whole different idea rather than a flying car or air taxi concept. But um, sure, I'm all for it. I mean, the Dyson thing is super cool. I don't own one. I want to own one, but I think part of the allure of fans is that they make the noise, right? It's not just about cooling you off. Sometimes it's about <laughs> the white noise, right? That sweet white noise. That's true. I don't. I don't have the Dyson. I know they're pretty quiet. So. But they're also super expensive relative to the generic electric box fans, right? Yeah, it's hard to justify unless you say, well, it's kind of like art, you know, for, to pay 250 for a fan that you could buy a fan for $15 that does the same job, you know? Right. You wanna, like, it, it needs to have a place in your home that's like, <laughs> there it is, and it cools me. <laughs> Which that you can kind of justify. Like, if you're going to put some other piece of art in that same spot, that was going to cost you money anyway, then maybe it makes sense. You could take down the Picasso and put up the Dyson fan. Exactly. Like, I spent $40 on a, a water... Wait, I'm blanking. What do you call it? They water your plants with? Teapot? It's not a teapot. It's not a teapot, obviously. A water um, jug? A, a water... What do they call those things? I don't know. A watering can. I'm an idiot. A watering can. Okay. But I bought a sort of artsy-looking watering can so I can leave it out all day in plain sight, and it doesn't look just like a cheap, crappy plastic one, you know? That's the same principle here with a Dyson fan. Yeah. Um, you can leave it out? Is that it? You can leave it out and not have to worry about it? Well, if, yeah. if it's got an artistic quality, you can leave it in your space, and it can hide in plain sight. Kind of, I uh -huh. think that's what Dyson's going for, rather than just, like, having an ugly, cheap fan in your big space yeah, yeah anyway so jalopterra looks pretty cool who's who knows if it ever comes to fruition um but it's an interesting concept it's definitely one of the outside very outside the box ones amongst a very outside the box kind of sector with evtol since there's also different oh yeah and yet have have a lot of similarity this is the first one the only one we've seen with that fluidic propulsion system so we'll keep an eye on it all right well that'll do it for today's episode of struck if you're new to the show, thank you so much for listening and please leave a review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out the WeatherGuard Lightning Tech YouTube channel for video episodes, full interviews, and short clips from the show. And follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at WGLightning. Tune in next Tuesday for another great episode on aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardaero.com. That's weatherguardaero.com.